After nearly 40 years in the Senate, after more than 20 years in Senate leadership, after nearly a decade at the very top, as far as Republicans in the Senate go, cocaine Mitch McConnell has finally announced his intention to step aside. Senator McConnell, in his own words. Do you want to play rough? The other senators, it turns out, did not want to play rough. So Leader McConnell announced the the beginning of the end on a gracious note. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. I'll finish the job the people of Kentucky hired me to do as well, albeit from a different seat. And I'm actually looking forward to that. It's amazing how Senator Cocaine can turn that Cuban accent just on and off. I'm actually looking forward to that from a different seat. So he's sort of kind of giving up power in nine months. And then he's sticking around the Senate for a couple more years. Now, I am not as big a McConnell hater as many people on the right. The man held firm on the Supreme Court vacancy after Justice Scalia died, which gave President Trump the opportunity to appoint three Supreme Court justices who were then able to overturn Roe v. Wade. As far as I'm concerned, Cocaine Mitch deserves a lot of credit for that. On lots of other issues, however, he's been a squish, which I suspect is the real reason he's stepping down. The man survived a major challenge to his leadership in 2022, but since then he's lost even more support among conservatives, and his recent health scares have convinced a lot of people on the fence that he's no longer up to the job. Mitch McConnell saw the writing on the wall, and even now he is attempting to cling to power in a way that is typical, but nonetheless impressive, actually. The longest serving Senate leader in history is on his way out. Not really because he's tired and not really because he's old, but because he can't hold on to that leadership any longer because the GOP is no longer his party. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. guess I have to react to those white women dancing. I've, I've put it off for days because I didn't want, there's this video that has tens of millions of views. It's gone viral so quickly. And it's these white women with their Stanley cups dancing around. And for some reason, this is a real cultural touch point. So I did, I, I, look, I did my best. I didn't want to have to talk about it, but I guess we do have to talk about it. I'll talk about it in just a moment. First though, go to puretalk.com slash Knowles. Free should mean exactly that. Free. When you switch to Pure Talk today, you will get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There is no four-line requirement. There's no activation fee. Just a free Samsung that is built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, 
and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost 1000 bucks a year. Plus, with Pure Talk, you know you're spending your hard-earned money with a company that aligns with your beliefs. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you to make the switch today. They've got the best service. They've got best service, meaning customer service, best service, meaning phone service. You can use it in the United States. You can use it if you're vacationing overseas. You can use it all over the place. Go to puretalk.com slash Knowles to claim eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Go to puretalk.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, to switch to my cell phone company. Not like I don't own the company, but I do own the phone. So go check it out today. Aveat Quevale, Cocaine Mitch. The guy's been around for so long. I just have to go back and revisit. This isn't even his earliest speech when Mitch McConnell got elected to the Senate. He got elected in, what, 84, enters the Senate in 85. This is a speech from Mitch McConnell in 1987. And what's so amazing about it is it shows you how the more things change, the more things stay the same. Because even back in 1987, Cocaine Mitch is talking about Democrats stealing elections through ballot insecurity, through widespread mail-ins, through fraud. Check it out. Mr. President, it's election day in Kentucky. And I suspect on this election day, as on many election days over the last hundred years or so, in some areas of my state, people are attempting to buy votes, sell votes, intimidate voters, and in general, distort the election process. A lot of the election fraud that occurs in my state, and I suspect in many others, involves the use of absentee ballots. But what the candidates and the public would like to see is an honest election between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. He could have given that speech today, except it would have been a little bit slower today. He might have been hobbling around a little a little slower, but but the substance of that could, could be absolutely the same. It's a reminder when the Democrats say, oh, this is a crazy Republicans conspiracy theory pushed by Trump and the ultra right wing MAGA Republic, whatever. This has been a problem for a long time. In that very speech, Cocaine Mitch talks about how the Democrats very possibly stole the 1960 election in Illinois through these this kind of chicanery. So been a long time. Unfortunately, politics hasn't changed very much. In as much as it has changed, there have been a handful of big wins that Mitch McConnell can take a lot of credit for, like the overruling of Roe v. Wade. A lot of big wins for conservatives, mostly losses for conservatives. Mostly the problems that that even Cocaine Mitch could identify in the 80s have gotten worse from our point of view, and they've uh, benefited the Democrats. So the question is, who replaces Mitch McConnell? Right now, there are three big contenders who are being talked about. The three Johns, that would be John Thune, John Barrasso, and John Cornyn. Now, most people don't really know anything about John Thune or John Barrasso, or maybe you've heard of John Cornyn. If you've heard of John Cornyn, probably all you know about him is that he's the, the more centrist of the Texas senators. You know, Senator Cruz, definitely more on the right-wing side. Uh, Senator Cornyn, a little bit more on the middle. Uh, there are other options being floated, though. A lot of people, I, I tweeted it out yesterday. I said, who do you want to see as Senate Majority Leader? I would say the modal choice, the, cho- the, the most frequently recurring choice was Rand Paul, to which I say, look, I love Rand Paul. I Because I 
live in an adjacent state to Rand Paul's state. I see him sometimes on the airplane when we're flying to DC. I think the guy is great. He has my admiration uh, for so many things. The guy's not going to be Senate Majority Leader, okay? That's not, Rand Paul is probably the last guy who's going to be Senate Majority Leader because he is extremely principled. He's got a view of politics that is not particularly popular in Washington or even among the Republican conference. And, and the job of the Majority Leader is just to raise money, wrangle votes, whip people into line. And, and so your favorite senator is not necessarily going to be the best choice for a Majority Leader. Uh, other people have floated Marco Rubio. People have floated Josh Hawley, as who, who definitely would would seem more plausible. They're a bit younger. I think you know the fact that Senator McConnell now has been in Washington since the 1780s. Probably people want a younger leader who maybe is a little bit more vigorous. I say, what if we just go in the other direction? So my, I would like to make my formal endorsement for Senate Majority Leader. That would be Chuck Grassley who actually is quite conservative, uh, and he's quite conservative even beyond ideology because he's 90 years old. So everyone says, we don't want any more of these 80-year-old politicians. Yeah, I agree. Let's go 90. Let's do it. With age comes wisdom. Let's go, baby. So, all right, you can all duke it out. Oh, I want Rand Paul because he's really good. Oh, I want Ted Cruz. He's extremely principled and conservative. Oh, I want Mike Lee. He's also extremely principled and conservative. Oh, I want who? Yeah, okay, you can duke that out. I'm a Grassley man, baby. Let's go. 90 is the new 80. 90 is the new 80 and 80 is the new 50. So let's go. Why not? Uh, Turning to more important matters, women are psychos, according to a new study. There's this new study out. Where is it? Uh, Oh, yes. Okay. I've got all of it written right here. These are the important points. Women, according to a new study from Anglia Ruskin University, uh, conducted by Dr. Clive Boddy, who's an expert in corporate psychopathy, uh, uh, these results are being presented at the Cambridge Festival, uh, shows that women are like five times more likely than we previously thought to be psychopaths. Now, we used to think that that the vast majority of psychopaths were men. Psychopaths meaning people who don't feel empathy, who are extremely cold, who are extremely calculating, who there are all sorts of definitions of a psychopath versus a sociopath, but you get the idea, the kind of person that Christian Bale played in that great movie in the 80s. There is a difference between male and female psychopaths according to this new study. So according to Dr. Body, female psychopaths tend to be more manipulative than males And they use different techniques to create good impressions and use deceit and sexually seductive behavior to gain social and financial advantages more often than male psychopaths. Stop the presses. Hold on. Pull over. You're telling me that women are more likely to manipulate people based on their sex appeal than men are? Wow. I'm so glad we have a scientific study to show us that. It goes on. Female psychopaths tend to use their words rather than violence to achieve their aims. This is very different from how male psychopaths operate. So you're telling, hold on, hold on, slow down, doctor. You're telling me that women who are much, much physically weaker than men tend to use non-physical means of manipulation to achieve their ends compared to men who are more likely to use their, their brute physical strength? Wow, what are the odds? If female psychopathy expresses differently, then measures designed to capture and identify male criminal psychopaths may be inadequate at identifying female non-criminal psychopaths. Uh, Women also, it turns out, are not as severely psychopathic or psychopathic as often as males, but nevertheless, 
have been underestimated in their incidence levels and therefore are more of a potential threat than others previously understand. All of this, all of this scientific language on a kind of saucy, sexy topic like psychopathy, all of that simply boils down to a basic fact that we've all forgotten in recent years, which is that men and women are different. That you could erase everything in the in the article, in the study, and just say men and women are different. And the scientists previously had underestimated the incidence of female psychopaths because they made the same mistake that the feminists do. They made the same mistake that so many modern people do, which is they're judging men and women as if men and women are exactly the same. So even the feminists, they say, if we really want to be empowered, we need to dress like men, we got to act like men, we got to talk like men, we got to relate to our personal intimate lives and our professional lives like men. No, ladies, what are you talking about? You, women and men are different. So if women want to really succeed at being women, they're going to do different things than the men are going to do if they really want to succeed at being men. Whether we're talking about happiness in your personal life, whether we're talking about success in whatever kind of vocational life you have, or whether we're talking about psychopathy, it's going to look different for men and women. Now, both men and women should subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just ring that bell, ding the thing, ring the whatever the doodad is, and make sure you subscribe to the Michael Knowles YouTube channel. Speaking of women, I got to get to it. I tried to avoid it. I failed. There's this video of white women in their, I don't know, anywhere from, say, their late teens to their mid-twenties, dancing around at a gas station for some reason to some modern music and they've got well just take it away okay the women are dancing they're not particularly scantily clad i mean the clothing's a little tight you know but it's not you know they're not wearing they're not belly dancing exactly i don't know they've kind of they've got their stanley cups and they're wearing sweatshirts and they're not it's not like exactly that they're bumping and grinding there aren't any men there you know, they're, they're jiggling in a way that's not not quite a waltz, but okay, they're doing this, and and what, and what, what the red pill bros are saying, and even some of the really hardcore traditionalists. I'm fairly traditionalist myself, but some of the these people they're saying that this is degenerate that they're dancing to modern, filthy, degenerate rap music. They're jiggling around in a way that is debased and degrading. This is a sort of a a primitive sexual mating dance, that it's grotesque, it's repulsive. Why would any self-respecting man ever want to even look at those women? Okay, that's on one side of the debate. Then on the other side of the debate, you have people saying, uh, and I, probably they are a little more accurate here. The The other side of the debate is saying, hey, there are just some women having fun. It's not, you know, it's not that big a deal. But even some of them will go further. They'll say, this is good. This is, there's nothing questionable whatsoever about this. It's totally, I don't know, it's empowering and it's great. And I, I don't know. I guess I'm somewhere, I'm probably closer to the latter category on this particular issue, but I'm somewhere in the middle. Because I recognize, as Plato recognized, that, 
uh, music cuts directly into our soul. So it surpasses the reason and music that is very percussive music that, that, you know, has a real driving beat that can make you irrational. You know, that can, it's just like any nightclub, right? That's why nightclubs are all just like, because it just gets you kind of moving and not, not thinking too much. Because if people were conscious and rational at, at nightclubs, they just wouldn't do any of the things that they do there. So yeah, that's, that's a fear. It isn't the most attractive thing. Like if I stumbled onto this scene, my first instinct wouldn't be to just go and sweep one of those women off their feet. It's fine. I wouldn't, I'm not saying I would hate it. You know, I'd be, I'd start vomiting or something, but I'm not, it's not, I don't find it the most attractive. I don't, it's, but you know where I really land on all of this? I'm, I'm basically on the side of the women. If they want to jiggle around at a gas station, it, there are, there are worse things to do these days. I basically come down on the side of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll be shocked to hear. Who writes in the Summa Theologiae that human laws do not forbid all vices? Let's say for a second that this kind of dancing, it's not, you know, it's not the, the best. It's not the best kind of music. It's not the most elevated kind of dancing. It's not the most conducive to human flourishing and uh, a happy society. But it's not. Come on, man. These, they're not like shoot, shooting up fentanyl here, okay? They're just kind of doing a silly, goofy little dance on camera. St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us, human laws do not forbid all vices from which the virtuous abstain, but only the more grievous vices from which it is possible for the majority to abstain. Chiefly those that are to the hurt of others without the prohibition of which human society could not be maintained. Thus, human law prohibits murder, theft, and such like. The purpose of human law is to lead men to virtue, not suddenly, but gradually. There's so much contained in the wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas here, which is, he starts off, St. Thomas Aquinas reacting to this goofy little video of white women dancing with their Stanley Cups. He says, look, look, red pill bros, you don't need to come down so hard on this. Okay, human law, may, look, hey, listen, guys, may, maybe it's kind of a vice, I don't, but human, this is not the sort of vice jiggling around with a Stanley Cup. It's not the sort of vice that human law really has to protect. And so then all the libs and the libertarians, they'll say, yeah, that's right. I'm so glad that you're on our side, St. Thomas Aquinas. The point of law is not to curb vice. And he says, whoa, 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 hold up, liberals and libertarians. Actually, that is the point of law. The point of law is to lead people to virtue, and the point of law is to curb vice. And so then the red pill guys and the ultra super duper treads, they say, yeah, that's right. Thomas Aquinas is on our side. But he says, whoa, 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 hold on, guys. Gradually, not suddenly. You don't just ban everything immediately like you're in some Middle Eastern country where they chop your head off if you show your ankle. No, you do it gradually, then suddenly. He goes on. Wherefore, it does not lay upon the multitude of imperfect men the burdens of those who are already virtuous that they should abstain from all evil. So this is really important because if you've cultivated any bit of virtue, you'll notice that it's easier to do virtuous things and it's and it's easier to avoid falling into vice. But if you haven't cultivated any virtue, if you're still mired in vice, then it's really, really hard to, to pull yourself out. It's, it's just like any kind of addiction to drugs or to pornography or to jiggling around on social media with a Stanley Cup. So it's very hard, and the law has to be accommodating of that. And why? Why does the law have to be accommodating? At this point, it's the libs and the libertarians saying, yeah, you're on our side, St. Thomas Aquinas. But he's saying, no, 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 it has to be accommodating, not because there's some right to do any of these things, but because otherwise, quote, these, these imperfect ones being unable to bear such precepts would break out into yet greater evils. So if you, if you clamp down too hard, too suddenly, 
on all these sorts of little vices and where people are not prepared for them, they're just going to crack and they're going to go totally nuts. We all can think about this uh, in, in families. We either have come from a family like this or we know families like this where the parents were so super duper strict and maybe they got, maybe they didn't used to be strict, but they got super strict over time that the kids rebel against that. And the kids go way crazier than in the, in the families that had a little bit of a lighter touch on things that were a little bit more agile in responding to the development of the children. And then Thomas Aquinas concludes here, says, human law does not prohibit everything that is forbidden by the natural law. What does that mean for the jiggling white girls? It means if their goal is to attract a man, this, is not, this probably is not going to be the most effective way to do it. It's not the most attractive thing a woman could do. If the goal here is to just blow off some steam and have some fun, there are actually probably more fun ways to have fun than uh, dancing around to this bad music at a gas station. But Relative to the culture we're living in today, where we're chopping off little kids' genitals and there's all sorts of weird, like, satanic orgies going on, and we have, like, creepy pedo island down there in the Caribbean, and, I, you know, just this, this ugly culture. People don't even know the words that they're using anymore, and we live in a culture of, like, Doja Cat and little Nas X in popular music pretending to copulate with the very devil himself. In that kind of culture, the white girls with the Stanley Cups dancing around in sweatshirts at the gas station— it's probably okay. It's probably okay, all right? Call me a squish. Call me in St. Thomas Aquinas a squish, if you dare. There's much more to say, but first, text Knowles to 200-300. For most homeowners, window replacement is not something that you've ever done before, and it might be daunting. Luckily, there's a company that will do the work for you. Renewal by Anderson is your one-stop shop for window design, manufacture, and installation. Windows play a crucial role in regulating indoor temperatures, just the past week in Nashville, it was 70 degrees, then it was 32 degrees or something, then it was, it kind of goes all over the place, all right? If you notice a spike in your heating or cooling bills, that might be due to inefficient windows. Don't put it off any longer. Renewal by Anderson offers limited, fully transferable, best-in-the-nation warranty coverage. Right now, Renewal by Anderson offers a free in-home consultation on quality, energy-efficient, affordable windows or patio doors with special financing options. And if you call for a consultation, you might end up talking to my cousin because I have a cousin who's, who's worked for this company for years and has always spoken very, very highly of it. I've talked to a carpenter who said, unsolicited, he said, any home I go into with Renewal by Anderson, I know it's going to be much better quality work. Text Knowles, Canada B-L-E-S, to 200 300 for a free consultation. To buy one window or door, get one 40% off, plus you'll save 200 bucks off your whole purchase. Savings won't last long. Text Knowles to 200-300. That is Knowles to 200-300. Texting privacy policy in terms of conditions. Post to textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message generates may apply. Reply stop to opt out. Minimum purchase required. Interest accrues from date of purchase, but is waived. If paid within a promotional period, go to windowappointmentnow.com for full offer details. If you love The Daily Wire's number one hit party game, and I know you do, and if you love The Daily Wire's number one hit party show, yes or no, then buckle up because now the full, uncensored, and even deleted episodes of Yes or No are now available exclusively for subscribers on dailywire.com. A lot of you have written in. You've said, hey, uh, Michael, I really like the Yes or No game. The Yes or No game, I think, is the biggest seller in the Daily Wire shop and love the show. And But how come I can watch it on YouTube, but I can't watch it on the Daily Wire app, which is what I'm paying for with my membership. I know it took a little while to work out the technical kinks while we're here and there's way more yes or no 
on the Daily Wire website, on the Daily Wire app than there is on YouTube, such as all the great fun stuff from my episode with Candace Owens. That, uh, you know, Candace, sometimes she, she sometimes is not YouTube friendly, okay? Well, several questions were removed for YouTube, now available on the website. Take a look. Men who don't work out are like women who cry on TikTok after their pet bunny dies. It's disordered, <laughs> weak, and hard to look at. <laughs> That's just funny. Get the yes or no game and maybe the conspiracy expansion pack with over 110 new cards today. Go to dailywire.com slash shop to get yours before they're gone. Now, speaking of millennials, there's some good news for millennials. You always hear about all this terrible stuff with millennials, like they don't know anything and they're subject to crippling debt and they're not getting married, they're not having kids and they're not growing up and, and all of that, I guess, is true. But at the very least, they're about to become loaded They are going to get rich, baby. Millennials are on course to become the richest generation in history because their parents and grandparents are dying. So uh, the generational transfer of wealth, uh, which was largely built up in property, will amount to $90 trillion in the United States alone. I guess this is this is good news for millennials. Unfortunately, they don't have like, wives and husbands to share this transfer of property with. They don't have kids to spend the money on. They don't. So millennials still have a lot of problems and they better catch up with it. But all in all, the millennials who have been bemoaning their lot since, I mean, I'm a millennial, so we've been doing that since high school. Uh, and now all of a sudden, they're about to become the richest generation in history because we live in time and space. So you remember, especially a couple of years ago, there was all this feisty debate over the boomers versus the millennials. And you know, there's that there's that meme, okay, boomer, and just this, and this has been going on for years. Just the millennials constantly whining about the boomers. And you know, look, the boomers, they were hippies and they made a lot of mistakes. But in part, they would say, you boomers, you, you had everything so easy. College was really cheap when you went to college and you could buy your first homes for not very much money and your country was safer and you had all of these advantages. And we don't have those advantages. We grew up in the financial crisis and our college costs 150 grand to attend and we have debt and we blah, 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 whatever. And all of that's, all of it's true. Everything that they all accuse each other of, it's all true. What people are forgetting is time. So eventually, the millennials are going to inherit what the boomers had if the boomers didn't totally squander it. But it's really hard to, squ- I mean, even if they did squander it, they're going to squander it on stuff that the boomer, that the millennials are going to inherit. M- liberals, modern people forget about time. It's, it's, a, it's a strange aspect of liberal modernity that we just want to take ourselves outside of time. We want to deny that we age. We want to deny that we die. We're going to cure death. We're never going to grow up. We're going to be living in Peter Pan's Neverland forever and ever and ever. But there is time. And there's downsides of time. You wrinkle and you die, I guess. But there's upsides of time too, which is that you, you mature. Hopefully you grow a family. You grow in your skills and your wisdom and your career. And you come into $90 trillion. Now this raises another uh, unpopular aspect of social life that people always want to deny, which is inheritance. We're talking about inheritance here. And in modern liberal 
life, we all think that's terrible. We think you ought to just earn everything that you ever get, and we, we all need to have an e- a totally equal starting place, and we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and just all that matters is what I earn for myself, not what I inherit. That's a, that's a very modern idea. Yes, you want to you want to be your own man in many ways. You, you want to achieve your own accomplishments. But we live in a society. We, we, we're not just atoms free-floating. And we do inherit a lot, you know, to deny our, our inheritance. I'm not even talking about my, a, lot of, a lot of us did, didn't grow up with a lot of money. But and some people did grow up with a lot of money, and then they'll, they'll inherit that money. But there's an even greater inheritance, which is our cultural inheritance. It's our national inheritance, our patrimony. We, we inherit that. And when we deny that, we, when we deny the reality and the good of inheriting stuff, then all of a sudden we look like prideful fools because we're standing on the shoulders of giants and we think that we're flying. When the modern libs come out today and they say, we're the most moral, wonderful generation ever because we're not racist, or whatever they say. They actually, even by whatever racism means, they are racist, but but we are not, we're not colonial or whatever, whatever nonsense they say. Yeah, where do you get that from? Where'd you get that? Where did those ideas, where did the ideas that are in your head come from? They came from the hard work of many, many generations before you, and you just inherited them. You didn't come up with it. You didn't invent this stuff. You did very little on your own, actually. You inherited a lot. And one hopes that with what you have inherited, intellectually, culturally, even financially, that you do good with it. You don't bury your talents underground, but you actually do something with them and grow them. But don't tell me that it was all just you and you don't, you don't, uh, have any gratitude to anyone else for giving it to you. That's not, that's not how life works. I don't care if you have two pennies to your name. You are the recipient of a great inheritance, which we can either use fruitfully or squander. Speaking of America's future, we have a new candidate. Well, no, we don't. We have an old candidate who's new again in the Democrat race. That would be Marianne Williamson for president. Hey, I have an important announcement to make. As of today, I am unsuspending my campaign for the presidency of the United States. I had suspended it because I was losing the horse race. But something so much more important than the horse race is at stake here, and we must respond. Right now, we have a fascist standing at the door. Everybody's all upset about it. Well, we should be upset about it. But we're not going to defeat the fascist by, well, by what? What is President Biden offering? He says, let's finish the job. Well, I hope you realize we're talking about millions of voters for whom they can't even survive unless they work at two or three jobs. Okay, so then she goes on. You know, she's sort of a woo-woo, new agey. She's a witch, actually. Is in, in the most technical sense of that term, Marianne Williamson is a witch. But she's a sort of amusing witch, and it's the Democratic Party. So, you know, that's sort of par for the course there. She's back in the race. Why? She doesn't quite explain herself all that well, does she? She says, look, I dropped out of the race because I was losing. But now I'm back in the race because so much more is at stake. What? There was always a lot at stake. Did you, When you entered the race the first time, you thought there wasn't a lot at stake? There's a fascist who might be... What are you? Oh, Trump. Trump's the fascist. Okay, and now Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. He was always going to be the Republican nominee. You knew that. So not, none of that changed. No, what changed is when you dropped out, what changed was you realized you had no path to the, to the nomination. And now you're getting back in because you think you do have a path to the nomination. And you're getting back in and you think that because of Michigan. 
So we talked yesterday about the results in Michigan for the Republican primary, where Trump wins almost two-thirds of the vote, and Nikki Haley got somewhere around 30%. And so there was a big win for, for Trump. Joe Biden, in the Democrat primary, only got 81% of the vote. Now, no one's really running. There's that guy, I even forget his name, Phillips, something deep. Something Phillips is running, but, you know, no one's really voting for him. So Biden gets 81%. Where's the rest of the vote go? In Michigan, 13.3% of the Democrat primary vote went to uncommitted. That's 100,000 votes. The margin of victory in a general election in Michigan could be nothing. I mean, it could be less than that. And 100,000 people are saying, Even in a primary that is essentially unopposed, we are going to vote for none of the above with the incumbent president. Biden is weak. Now, I don't think that uh, this sorceress, Marianne Williamson, is going to be the Democrat nominee. But she she could win some votes. She could win some delegates. She could get a lot of airtime. That is how we, Joe Biden, as an incumbent president who's been in Washington for over 50 years, he first got elected to the Senate in 1972, I believe. He has been vice president of the United States. He's the incumbent. This guy can't even vanquish a, a kooky witch. That is how weak the sitting president is. Now, speaking of presidential candidates, Nikki Haley is also sticking in the race. Nikki Haley has done better than a lot of people thought she would. She's done a, a be, almost exactly as well as I thought she would. Because I do know there is a significant portion of the GOP base that just, or of, of the GOP, not exactly the rank and file voters, but of the GOP coalition broadly, uh, that just hates Trump, just totally despises the guy. And so uh, they would they would like anyone else but him. And Nikki Haley very wisely ran in the anti-Trump lane in the race. And so she still has that that number of people. But still, what is it? 20% here. Even you get 30% somewhere else or, or much lower in other states. What is the argument for Nikki Haley to stay in the race? She articulates it on CNN. You're seeing the same thing whether you look at all the early states. Donald Trump didn't get 40% of any of the, of the Republican primary vote. It is a problem. Is He's not bringing people into the party. He's pushing people out of the party. The Republican Party is now not just changing based on tone. It's changing based on policy. Like what? No longer is there any talk about fiscal responsibility. That used to be a a pillar for the Republican Party. Yet you've got Donald Trump who put us $8 trillion in debt, more than any other president. You've got Republicans now who opened up earmarks and pet projects again in Congress, passing through 7,000 of them last year. Donald Trump's not talking anything about shrinking government, stopping spending, cutting out the waste, none of that. And then he's changed the whole idea of peace through strength. We used to always talk about the strength of our alliances. Mm -hmm. Now you've got Donald Trump basically saying he's going to tell Putin to go and invade our allies who stood with us after 9-11. It's all a shift. Okay, so she makes a few claims here. Some of them, the one she, maybe I misheard her. It sounded like at the beginning she was saying Trump wasn't getting more than 40% in the primaries. And that was true in some of the earlier polls back when there were still other candidates in in the primaries. But now when we look at how he's actually performing in these states, he's winning majorities. So most Republicans who are going out to vote are voting for Donald Trump to be the nominee. So he, yes, most Republicans want Trump to be the nominee in 2024. 
Then she goes on, she says, he's not bringing people into the party. People are leaving the Republican Party. She goes on to say, Colorado has fewer registered Republicans now. And you might attribute that to a number of things. I mean, in in some ways, he appears to be bringing people into the Republican Party, especially you saw this in 2016. People who had not voted much in the past would come in to vote for Donald Trump. So he's he's changing who makes up the Republican Party to some degree. Uh, And frankly, in a similar way to Ronald Reagan. But but it's true. Some people are leaving the Republican Party because they don't like Trump. So that 50-50. Then she goes on. And, and the most interesting point Nikki is making here is she says, it's not just these numbers. Okay. It's not just the electability question. He's changing the, the policies. It's not, it's not just the polls. It's not even just the rhetoric. It's the policies. He's changing the policies advocated by the Republican Party. That is somewhat true. It's not totally true. In some ways, Trump governed like a moderate Republican. But but in many ways, Nikki Haley has a point here. She's saying he's not talking about cutting spending. That's true. He's not. 10 years ago, GOP was really big on talking about cutting spending. 20 years ago, the GOP didn't really talk about cutting spending. Then 10 years ago, they did talk about cutting spending. And the argument was we need to cut spending. We need to get our fiscal house in order. Then we can deal with the social issues. Until then, we'll have a social truce. None of that worked. We elected the Tea Party and it didn't work at all. And I think the conclusion from that was you're actually not going to fix the fiscal issues until you get the social issues in line. What, what even is a social issue? We're talking about politics. Politics is society. So of course, this, of course the social issue, it's, it's just like saying the political issues, the issues that, that pertain to how individuals relate to one another, how families relate to one another, how people get along in society. You got to deal with that. You're not going to fix our fiscal house if we've got a blown open southern border. Okay, that's not going to happen. She says in all of that, he just, he's, he's changed the Republican Party. That is true. That is true. So the question then you got to ask yourself is, how was he able to do it? How was this billionaire New York real estate TV reality star who'd been a tabloid celebrity for 40 years, how was this guy able to come in on his first real run for office to, to win with no prior political experience the highest office in the land and to totally take over the Republican Party? Remake the RNC after his image, chase out the establishment guys. How was he able to do it? You might say it's, it's just his unique political talent. Yeah, he is uniquely talented. There's no question. But also, it's because the Republican Party had been so weakened. It was so incoherent. It had changed so much, and it was so dishonest with itself. Even when Nikki Haley says here, he's, he's dismantled peace through strength. What are, I, don't, I, I don't agree with that. Donald Trump, I think, was the best peace through strength president in my lifetime. A lot of the so-called Reaganites later on would go on to say, we're the stewards of the Reagan legacy. Let's go bomb every country on earth. That was not Ronald Reagan's idea. Ronald Reagan was downright dovish when it came to foreign policy. Even when you talk about the Beirut barracks bombing, when 250 Americans were killed, American troops, what, is, what does Reagan do? Does he go in and, and start, start lighting up the whole Middle East? No, he pulled his troops out of Lebanon. He, he, was, he was the most dovish president un, un, until Donald Trump in recent memory. It's, it's p- the peace through strength, the peace part is an important part. And Trump did exercise military strength and aggression. You know, he took out the top Iranian general. He dropped the Moab. He would do all sorts. But, but even that, it's a, it, the GOP had just come to so misunderstand itself and the legacy of Ronald Reagan, which it would, which it would uh, exalt. That gave the opportunity for Trump. You know, it's for the GOP, the people who don't like Trump, maybe take a look in the mirror. You know, before you accuse me, take a look at yourself. 
The Daily Wire is celebrating Leap Day. Oh, today's Leap Day with an extra year of Daily Wire Plus. Oh, wow, that's pretty good. Today only, when you buy a Daily Wire Plus annual membership, you get an additional year for free. Wow, that's pretty, that is a sweet deal. Uh, That's a year of ad-free, uncensored shows from the hosts you love and news that matters to you. A free year of unlimited access to our library of Daily Wire Plus hit movies like Lady Ballers and Run, Hide, Fight. Groundbreaking documentaries such as What is a Woman and Convicting a Murderer. Plus, you'll be the first in line to see every new release from Daily Wire Plus, like Mr. Burcham and the Pendragon Cycle. Two years for the price of one during our Leap Day sale today only. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe to become a member now. My favorite comment comes from the Drummer's Workshop, Norm's Music, who says, this attack on a children's classic is a pop insurrection. Pop insurrection. <sighs> wow. Okay. Uh, speaking of old classics, Steven Tyler, you know, the lead singer of Aerosmith, has uh, just been vindicated in court on a sexual assault claim from 1975. We are now in the year of our Lord, 2024. We are still litigating uh, criminal claims from 1975. A judge has dismissed a sexual assault lawsuit against Steven Tyler. Former model Jean Bellino claimed that the rocker, 75, groped her twice in 1975 when he was 27 and she was 17. Okay, I did Steven Tyler do this? I don't know if he did it or not. He's a rock star, so like probably he did. <laughs> I don't you know, I don't I don't really know. But that's not really the point here. The the point is should we be litigating cases 50 years later? Criminal cases, allegations of sexual assault or whether we're talking about groping or anything else. No, we should not. During, how is any of this happening? During the Me Too movement, remember the Me Too movement when uh, Hollywood pretended all of a sudden to really care about sexual assault, even though Hollywood is is the perpetrator of the sexual assault? Even though it's all these Hollywood executives who are the most degenerate, filthy, lecherous people on planet Earth, and all of a sudden they started wearing little pins to the Golden Globes because Harvey Weinstein got caught. And not even got caught. Everyone knew that Harvey Weinstein was doing creepy stuff, but he finally had to pay some consequences for it because of a confluence of of women speaking out and and political circumstances. So all of a sudden, all these other lecherous, degenerate, licentious animals, these satyrs decided to put on a little button. Time's up. Me too. I'm totally going to stop doing all the stuff that I've been doing for the best ever since the beginning of Hollywood. And and because of that, there was this mania that took hold in, in the culture not just in Hollywood, but in our court systems all over the place, all around the country, to lift statutes of limitations. So it, it used to be, you know, if you, if you groped a groupie at a, at a rock concert in the 70s, you couldn't be held accountable for it half a century later. In the Me Too mania, they said, yes, you can. Statutes of limitations are good. And statutes of limitations are good because people change, because memories fade, because false memories set in. I can't, that happens to so many people, to everyone to some degree. And because society changes and our understanding of the law changes. You know, we're, we're talking about culture and human law. They change very much. They change every few years. We're talking about the big major shift in the Republican Party. Well, think about the changes in our culture that occur over half of a century. 
And to the point we're making earlier on the relation between the natural law and the human law, human law is a a bit imperfect. It it is not synonymous with the eternal natural law. It responds to changing circumstances and and changing aspects of character and virtue in, in time and space among real people. And no one wants to come out and defend statutes of limitations because then it sounds like you're defending, you know, groping or something like that. But you're not. You're defending the law. You're defending the way human society really works. It reminds me of Chesterton's fence. Chesterton had this idea of the fence, which is you walk up, you see a fence in the middle of nowhere. You don't have any idea what it's for. You don't see what purpose it could possibly serve. So you go to tear it down, right? No, wrong. You don't tear it down. The first thing you ought to do is figure out what the fence was put up for in the first place. Then and only then should you consider tearing it down. Uh, Same thing here, folks. Statutes of limitations seem like a pretty wise thing. And uh, rockers, for for all their sins, I don't think we ought to be throwing them in jail or holding them to massive civil penalties for things they may or may not have done that people may or may not have remembered 50 years ago. Speaking of a blast from the past, I have the dumbest news story I've seen in days. And I, it's, it's personal to me because you all know how much I love Dante, the poet. He's, he's my main man. He's one of my main men. Love the guy. He was a, a Florentine poet and politician who lived around the year 1300 and was exiled. He wrote the Divine Comedy and uh, died in exile. And Okay. Really exciting story. People were sending this to me. They said, oh, Michael, this should interest you. Headline, meet the man who created our vision of hell. Scientists reconstruct the face of Dante for the first time in more than 700 years. All all of a sudden, already I was thinking, hold on, wait, what? And then the subheadline, Dante Alighieri was the first to describe the journey into heaven, hell, and purgatory. First of all, I don't think that's quite fair to say. I think like, St. Paul <laughs> described some of these things, the Christian mystics. And, but, but of course, we've covered in recent days, journalists don't really know anything about Christianity or history or art. So, okay, he was the first to describe the journey of whatever. Using his skull, scientists have digitally recreated his appearance for the first time. Th- that isn't true. And I know no, really nobody knows anything about Christianity or history or art or whatever. And really no one knows anything about Dante. But It just happens to be a niche interest of mine. And so the reason I know that that claim is false is because we have Dante's death mask. We have, they're they're, uh, like a funerary mask. There's a custom in Florence or in Ravenna where Dante died of when you die, they'd make a mask out of your face. So they just kind of know what you look like. And we have that. We have actually several copies of it and they all look the same because it's his face. That's his face. And that's what it looked like when he died. Not so much as a Google search. And so why do I mention this? Just because I love Dante, just because journalists don't know anything? No. This to me is the most perfect example of modern science. This is so, this is so sciencey. Science comes in, they say, you know, we've conducted a major study, groundbreaking scientific analysis with experts from Harvard and Yale and Princeton and MIT, and they've all discovered that it turns out men and women are different. Can you imagine? Look at all these statistics and numbers and studies. Science. Can you? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing because every illiterate medieval peasant also knew that and probably knew it better than most of the modern people at all of the fancy universities, many of whom don't actually acknowledge the difference between men and women. 
Do you know, for the first time, we've based on the skull that we have found, and we had a computer model based on AI, and then we did this, and now we know what Dante looks like. Oh, yeah. So did medieval peasants, because they could see Dante's, <laughs> they could see his uh, uh, death mask. Yeah. We think that we've invented everything. We think that everyone came, that ever came behind us was just a big, dumb, stupid idiot. And the irony is, the more that we hold that view, the more inclined we are to believe that, the dumber and stupider and more idiotic we seem compared to the men who came before us. Okay, it's Theology Thursday, baby. I have a, I have a guest, a friend of mine is coming Isabel Brown. The rest of the show continues now. You don't want to miss it. Become a member. Use code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S, at checkout for two months free on all annual plans.